Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. Today we're going to be talking about the connected parent. But before we get there, and I know you're all desperate to get there, but just one moment before we get there, I wanted to remind you and ask you to let your friends know about this podcast. Most people find out about podcasting from their friends, and we would really appreciate it. If you know people who are involved in adoption or foster care, any type of adoption or any type of foster care, uh, or respite providers or kinship providers, would you let them know about the Creating a Family podcast? They can listen to it on, you might have to explain <laughs> how they can access podcasting, but any phone uh, has an app or uh, the, the iPhones come with the app, but the uh, Androids, you may have to download your app and uh, but let them know how to do it and let them know about Creating a Family. And we will say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Today, we are going to be talking about The Connected Parent a book that was written by Lisa Qualls and Dr. Karen Purvis with input from Emily Pickett. Uh, Lisa Qualls is the author of, as I've just mentioned, The Connected Parent. She co-wrote it with Dr. Karen Purvis. She is the mom of 12 kids by birth and adoption, and sometimes also she is a foster care provider. Uh, using her training as a TBRI practitioner, she mentors adoptive and foster moms in her hope circle so that they can renew their hope, gain courage, and become the moms they were meant to be. We're also going to be talking with Emily Pickett. She is the media specialist at the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development at Texas Christian University, where she oversees the Institute's marketing, communication, and media efforts. And she is also the Institute Connections blog author. Emily previously served as right hand to Dr. Karen Purvis, for whom the Institute is named. She is a feature writer in Dr. Purvis's last written work, which is the book we're getting ready to talk about, The Connected Parent. Welcome, Lisa and Emily, to Creating a Family. We are so happy to have you here to talk about the book. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, so how did this book come to be? I mean, I, as, as listeners to this show know, I love The Connected Parent. I talk about TBRI, I recommend it. Um, and the connected parents seem to kind of have summed it all up in my mind. So first of all, how did this book come to be? Uh, how was uh, Dr. Purvis, Emily, what year did she pass away? She passed in 2016. In 2016, so mm -hmm. it's been four years. And at what part, how much did she write of this book? And, and just tell us the history. Lisa, let's start with you. Well, I have to go back a little further and tell you how I even discovered Dr. Purvis. So in 2006, we began the adoption process and over the course of 16 months, we brought home four children from Ethiopia Good and their heaven. ages ranged, I know, their ages ranged from about five months to 10 and a half. And as you can imagine, our world was rocked. You know, we thought we were well prepared. I had been a mother for 20 years. I had a background in mental health and we were really drowning. And in particular, one of our children had such severe trauma that her behaviors were pretty extreme. And once we finally realized this wasn't going to just sort of get better with lots of love and all the things we knew, we started searching hard for more help. And I was so, so blessed. I was writing a, a blog. My blog back then had already started in 2006, One Thankful Mom. And somebody, one of my readers actually introduced me to Dr. Purvis. And she sent me links to three videos that she had done, that she'd spoken at a conference. And I will never forget watching those for the first time and watching her talk and thinking, she has hope for my kids. And if she can have hope for my kids, I'm going to hold on to her hope. I, I was at a point where I didn't really have a lot anymore, but I held on to hers, you know, and um, I read The Connected Child and it changed so much. I mean, I already understood a fair bit about trauma. I understood about the parenting needs, but she gave me like very practical tools and ways of parenting my kids that began to change everything. And connected, you know, parenting with connection. Once I learned it, I've never turned back. It's, mm -hmm. it's really transformed my life. So for me, the book started with 
me meeting Dr. Purvis in that way. And then later through my writing and speaking, I got to spend time with her in person. We were doing Empowered to Connect conferences live back then. Well, they're still live, but like where we were traveling and Emily was part of that. And of course I was completely in awe of Dr. Purvis. She was like my hero, but I had an idea for another book. I loved The Connected Child. I loved so many other books that had helped me. But I, there was a part of me as a mom who was just in the trenches every day. There was this part of me that thought, but none of those authors, as amazing as they are, are living my life. They are not here doing this in my home every day with all these children, with all these needs. So I thought, and I remember talking with Emily about this idea. I said, what if we could take like my life, my real stories about my family and how I'm trying to use these tools from Dr. Purvis and then combine them with her incredible scientific background and her years of expertise and experience and put together one book with both voices that would really serve parents. And Emily did encourage me to talk with Dr. Purvis about the book and much to my joy and amazement, she thought it was a great idea and that was the beginning of the book and we really did start writing way back in 2012. Okay, so the, the genesis goes all the way back to, to 2012. How much of it was written but when she passed away in 2016? Well, a good portion of it because we had been working on it so long, chapter by chapter. <laughs> so it was substantially written in 2016. And uh, sadly, Dr. Purvis passed away. And at that point, Emily, you came into the process. So uh, what, what was your role? Sure. So I, I was involved from the beginning watching these chapters go back and forth between Lisa and Dr. Purvis. And so was pretty familiar with the content of the book and also just had the immense honor and pleasure of accompanying Dr. Purvis most places for several years as her assistant. So was really, I mean, familiar seems like a small word, but knew her voice very well and knew the content of TBRI very, very well as also. So Dr. Purvis was working on the book up until a couple of months before she died. She was very, very concerned that this book would not get published and wanted it to be very badly. So Dr. Purvis's family was uh, gracious enough to ask me to um, help tie up some of her parts just with the access I had to so much writing she had done, so much speaking she had done. I was really able to finish her parts with Dr. Purvis's own words from videos we have, from audio interviews, from writing she had. And so just sort of able to, to put it together that way. But it is very much her voice, very much her wisdom, very much her words. And I was honored to just have um, the part that I had in it. So just briefly, uh, and I'll let you two decide who, who should answer this. Briefly, how would you say the connected parent, the, the new book, compares to and differs from the connected child, which was the original impetus for really TBRI. Lisa, I'll let you start with that if you want to. Okay. All right. Well, I think it, it differs in, I mean, the one of the biggest ways, of course, is we have the two voices of the parent and the professional, but we start the book out with a pretty deep explanation of what attachment is. And I think we flesh that out more than was in the connected child. And we have a whole chapter on helping us understand as parents, our own attachment histories and what we're bringing to the relationship. And, you know, that's been a sensitive thing for me as an adoptive mom. I think when I first started hearing that, I felt um, a little uh, defensive, a little criticized, like, oh, you think this is about me, <laughs> you know? And, but the truth is we come into the relationship as ourselves, just like our kids do. And so we, we dive into that a little bit more. Do you want to answer more about that, Emily, about that particular part? i tell you what, before we get to that, let's, let's, let's just dive in now. Um, okay. What I'd like to do is let's start, as we always try to do, let's start at the beginning. Um, and in particular, I, let's talk about, uh, we're going to come and, and talk about parental attachment, because I agree with you, it's hugely important. But I think before we talk about parental attachment, let's talk about attachment in general. And Emily, you could start us off if you'd like. So most of our audience knows you can't be, you can't even be considering 
adoption or fostering and not and not have heard the word attachment. But I think there is some misunderstandings about what attachment is as well. So what, how do you define attachment or what is attachment and why is it so important? Sure. So a very broad definition of attachment is it's just that, just that affectionate bond between a child and a caregiver. Sometimes that caregiver is a biological parent. Sometimes that caregiver is an adoptive parent or someone taking care of that child in another capacity, but it's that affectionate bond. And the way that that develops is from very, very early in life. It's from, you know, when it's a baby in a neurotypical situation, it's a baby crying and that caregiver meeting needs over and over and over again. And it's really that first year of life that is most detrimental to this attachment process. And it's this process, this meeting of the child's needs over and over again, that really set the template for how that child will do relationships throughout their life. It sounds a little bit crazy that caring for a tiny baby by meeting their needs consistently and warmly is going to affect how they do relationships as a child and adolescent and later as an adult, but research is really strong on that. So that's mm -hmm. why attachment is so very important. It's the foundation of all of our relationships. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Exactly. Now let's move into talking about parental attachment. Lisa had, had talked about briefly before. I, I truly believe that there, this is the, uh, the, often the elephant in the room, and I hear what Lisa's saying. It's easy to feel defensive, but there is, there is so much shame and, and so much guilt. Nobody goes into the idea of adoption thinking that they're not going to be anything short of the most loving, caring, ideal parent. We all go into parenting in general with that, but, but certainly when you work, uh, fill out all those papers and work so hard to get this child, you believe that you're worried about the child attaching to you, but it never enters your head that you may struggle with attachment and it never enters your head that it's, it's that you bring something to the table that, that also impacts how this relationship is going to go, even though it seems obvious. So let's talk a little about the, the parental part about what we bring to the table. Emily, I'm gonna direct that one to you and then we'll circle around and, and, and get some of Lisa's input as well. Sure. So one thing that many parents are surprised to hear is that we are parenting out of the attachment style that we developed with our own caregivers. So the people who raised us might have taught us a lot of things expressly, might have told us a lot of things. We might have experienced instrumental care, but the way we experience their affection is informing our relationship that we have with our child. So it's not the child who arrives in your home either by birth or adoption or fostering who is going to determine your attachment style, but it's actually the other way around. And so what I mean by that is there are unconscious things that are happening sort of in the background. Our friends at Circle of Security, which is a wonderful attachment-based parent intervention, call it shark music um, from you know the Jaws theme, how those two notes tell us that there's danger. Well, we all have shark music playing in our heads when we have a child before us and that music is coming from what we experience as very young children and throughout um, childhood and adolescence. Okay, all right. So is it possible to change our, let's say we didn't have the strongest uh, uh, parenting and, uh, and we've done work on ourselves. Is it possible to change the type of attachment we bring to the table, Lisa? Well, I know from personal experience that it is, and it's very hopeful. I, um, you know, we were blessed, very blessed to be able to go through TBR practitioner training way back in 2011. I know it's developed so much since then, but part of doing TBRI training was doing the adult attachment inventory. And that's a very deep uh, interview that helps the person who's doing the testing and evaluating determine what your attachment style is. And I learned something really important in that because we can become what's called earned secure. We can develop earned secure attachment in adulthood. And so although my attachment style as a, as a young child and a teen was not secure, I was able to develop that primarily through the, my relationship with my husband who became a secure base for me 
and became that that person who gave me the yeses and looked into my eyes as if I was precious and all those kinds of things. And I also think for people of faith, there's evidence that your relationship with God can also bring about some of that earned security. So yes, it is possible to change. It's possible for us to heal. And I think simply understanding the attachment style that we developed as a child can help us begin to change the way we relate to our children. So it is hopeful. And I think that parents sometimes feel um, sort of accused that they're causing the problem. And so we did want to handle that chapter really sensitively because of how I've experienced that. But I think it is a hopeful chapter. And I think it will give parents um, the ability to reflect a little bit in, in positive ways. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, read a uh comment that we received uh, for this topic. I am a mom of two biological siblings. I am an adopted mom for two biological siblings. I have completely attached to my daughter, who is now six, and I am struggling with my son. He was six years old when we brought him home. He is constantly lying and stealing. I have been through counseling and a psychologist. I have read so many books and articles. In two years, I have tried so many techniques. Nothing is working. Please help. Uh, Lisa, I'm going to throw that one to you. This is a mom who has attached to one of the children that they adopted siblings. She's attached to one, but not the other. And she is really struggling. Um, Can you help just in general, we're going to go into some of the real practical details that the book is full of. Uh, But just for a mom who is struggling with attaching to one of her children. I think this, the child has attached to her, she, she said in another part of the email. <laughs> well, I think um, I'm, that last little part, I'm not really sure about because attachment is an affectionate bond between the two. So, but I do think it's interesting and something for us to reflect on that she has two children who are biological siblings and yet those children experience some things differently. Mm-hmm. And their brains have been impacted by their trauma and they've been you know, rewired due to trauma differently. So I have a dear, dear friend who adopted twins and one of her children, because of a number of situations, experienced more trauma and that child has had significant challenges with attachment, whereas the twin sister has not experienced it nearly as much. So I think even though these children are siblings, their brains are different and their their ability to be open to receive the nurture and care of the parent is going to be different and i i completely understand how disheartening that is you know that she can experience this loving connection with one child and not with the other and i think we almost have to think of them well we have to think of them as individuals that it's okay that it's different and that this other her second child is just going to require a higher level of intentional parenting you know dr purvis told us with completely uh healthy attached children the window and you can say this better emily but there's sort of a wider range of how our parenting can go and they're still going to thrive and do well but with children who've experienced a lot of trauma, that window is much narrower. We have to be much more intentional. So um, I understand why this mom is discouraged, but I think she just has to dive in with a child who has different needs. Emily, do you want to comment on that a little too? I, I would add to that. In, in the chapter in the book that talks about knowing yourself, we touch a little bit on triggers and, mm-hmm. um, and spend quite a bit of time on mindfulness. And I think that even with siblings that are biologically related, of course, they're going to behave differently. And so without knowing a whole lot about this mom's story, it might, um, it might help to do some time reflecting back and seeing what it is about those behaviors that mm-hmm. are, are so very difficult for her and lying and stealing and things of that nature. Those are difficult for any parent, but really being a detective, which is what Dr. Purvis always said, encouraging us to be a detective about our history. and seeing if we can, if she can point to a place in her life where maybe she felt um, maybe those issues came up in early childhood or something like that. And really being a detective about those things. She's mentioned that she's seen counselors, things of that nature. Of course, that's very important. A trauma-informed therapist is going to be 
your best friend when you're helping a child who is mm -hmm. um, experienced trauma or adversity. Mm -hmm. This, uh, what her son, why is his behavior more triggering to her? And honestly, sometimes it can be temperament. We all sure. have, you know, we're temp we, we, we come to this world with a specific temperament and, and, but I like the term intentional parenting because if it's not happening easily, that means we've got to bring more to the table. Yes, absolutely. All right. Let me remind everybody that this show is underwritten by the Jockey Bean Family Foundation. Jockey Bean Family is committed to providing support to families nationwide to help them help these forever homes become lasting places of love. Your support is vital to their success. They, as with many organizations, have had to cancel their big fundraiser this year. They have a, a gala that actually was supposed to be this coming up weekend. They are uh, having to cancel that. And uh, as a result, they, their support means goes even further for them right now. So please visit their website, jockeybeingfamily.com, to see how you can support and impact families nationwide. All right, now we're going to dive into the, the heart of the book, uh, and that is the section on uh, real-life strategies. One of the things I always appreciated whenever uh, I talked with Dr. Purvis is how practical she was. I tend to be a really practical person as well, and I really liked her practicality uh, and, and not hedging her bets and in, in, in diving in. So I love the fact that, that this book it spends time doing that. Okay, you have an entire chapter on scripts. Emily, starting with you, what do you mean by scripts? The chapter title is Simplify with Scripts, but let's start off by saying, what do you, what do you mean by scripts? Sure. So I think that one of the hallmarks of Dr. Purvis's intervention, trust-based relational intervention, or TBRI, as we call it, is um, this usage of scripts, because it is such a practical tool for parents. And what we mean by that are just short phrases that are going to help remind a child of, I guess, the desired behavior and how to get back on track. The thing about these scripts is they're not best taught in the situation where the child is struggling behaviorally. It's something that the parent or the caregiver is going to need to spend a little time proactively teaching so that later when mom or dad or caregiver is reminding them of of what's expected, they can easily recall, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing and get back on track. So we spent a good deal of the time in this book talking about the importance of those scripts, um, some scripts that we recommend, and then also how to develop um, a vocabulary for your own family of scripts that make sense for your family culture. Lisa, can you give us an example of, uh, uh, and then I'm going to come back to Emily for another example. Um, give us an example of what you mean by a script. Well, you know, as Emily said, every family is going to develop some of their own, but Dr. Purvis taught us some fantastic ones that I, you know, when my brain was completely overloaded and I was trying so hard to learn how to parent, she gave me these little scripts and they, they really helped me focus on getting my kids headed in the right direction. So some of the ones that I used a lot and continue to use are try that again with respect. You know, my child will say something not respectful. And rather than going into a long series of words about why that wasn't the way to ask, I just say, try that again with respect. I still probably say that nearly every day. Um, <laughs> she, she would say, let me see your beautiful eyes to try, you know, to get the child to turn toward her and make eye contact. And I use that a lot as well. Not in those words anymore. My youngest boys are in middle school. They don't necessarily uh, want those kinds of phrases, but we do in the book include scripts for older kids and teens as well. Okay. Give us some examples of the older, we're going to talk about teens at the end, um, but uh, give me an example of how you would, with a teen, um, well, say it again with respect, uh, try it again with respect would work with a teen, but uh, um, what would you say with, uh, what would be a script that uh, with uh, having their eyes turned to you that you might say with a teen, Emily? Well, one, um, one thing I wanted to mention is Dr. Purvis really loved working with teenagers because they provide such a wonderful, um, they can partner with you in a way that a young child cannot. And so she would actually 
ask the the teen, okay, if I'm needing you to have some eye contact with you, what, how would you like me to ask? So I think it's really important to mention that you do partner with the teen in your care. Um, for something like, let me see your eyes, you might say, um, hey, check in with me, or um, hey, can you turn around real quick? Just something like that, whatever mm -hmm. makes sense for your family culture or an organization, if that's where you're serving and working mm -hmm. with teenagers. Gotcha. And Emily, can you talk about another script? I um, say, uh, try that again with respect is one that she, that Dr. Purvis used. And I, I so love that one, but uh, what are some other tried and true ones that you guys uh, include in the book? One I really love is use your words. Um, the longer version of that is we want the child or teen to use their words, not their behaviors. And oftentimes they don't have the language for it. They may not cognitively be able to express what they're feeling, but by teaching, use your words um, in a time where everyone's calm and where everyone is regulated. When they're in a behavioral meltdown and are maybe using their body instead of their words, it's the hope that a caregiver could say, hey buddy, use your words, tell me what you need. And that would be a cue for the child to say, oh, I'm disappointed this happened. I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, whatever the case may be that's causing the behavioral episode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and sometimes, uh, the behavioral episode could be things such as lying uh, or, or because the first instinct is to uh, is to slip into the easy and what you're really uh, one that we used was uh, give yourself a minute don't answer right give yourself a minute because the minute is often what it took to think through and think uh, okay um, and or if you're not sure just say not now you know giving giving them time to, to process um, is, is an important one. All right, so why are scripts, Lisa, important? Uh, the, the idea of a script is something that is, is almost something wrote, something that is, uh, and some people think it feels fake, that, that it's not real because it's, it's a memorized speech, it's a memorized phrase that you're using. So why, why scripts, why are they important? Well, for people like me who tend to want to talk, they, they force us, they help us limit our words. And we know that when a child is dysregulated- I am right there with yes. you, by the way. <laughs> we know that when a child's dysregulated, their brain can process a very limited number of words. And so, you know, Dr. Purvis really wanted us to use as few words as possible to communicate what we were trying to say. And so for me, I think that's one of the most helpful aspects of scripts. I also, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I just remember feeling so completely overwhelmed. And to have even a couple of them written down and on my refrigerator so that I could remember to, to use those, it was a relief to me. And my children learned them quickly. They learned, they understood what I meant. And it was really funny when I had my, my uh, teenage daughter read the manuscript she came into the kitchen after reading. She said, mom, you know, all those things that you say, like, try that again with respect or got it, things like that. She said, I always thought you were just saying that. I didn't know that they were actual scripts. <laughs> so I think it seemed natural enough, <laughs> but they were, they've been very powerful, even still. Even still. Mm -hmm. Can I add just one thing to that? I think that Please. Lisa touched on this a little bit, but when you're giving a script, the tone in which you deliver that script is very, very important. If you are saying, try that again with respect in a sarcastic or punitive or angry tone, it's not going to have the effect that a, a pleasant countenance and a calm voice saying, can you try that again with respect is going to have. And so again, you're going to want to adapt the scripts to fit your family culture. If that doesn't sound like something your, your kiddos are gonna respond to, by all means, come up with something that's gonna make sense to them and do make sure that you're delivering those scripts in a way that um, is approachable and gentle and not punitive or punishing. Or not even rote. Yes. You know, that, you know, when you're, if you're really ticked and you say, say it again with respect, you know, <laughs> that's probably not the way you want to deliver it. Sure. Right. That's not going to calm their nervous system. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no. Nor yours, actually. Very, very true. Yeah. Very true. All right. Um, another chapter in the book is combat chronic fear. Uh, chronic fear is real. 
it is it's absolutely real let's but but may, let me make sure i'm understanding where you're coming from when you say chronic fear uh i'm thinking that parents uh, are often just fearful that uh that these children are not going to heal uh, but you may mean it from a different way so lisa what do you mean by chronic fear well, what we were addressing in that chapter primarily is the chronic fear that the child is experiencing that, you know, we understand their brains have been deeply impacted by trauma and their neurochemistry has been impacted and they're on high alert. You know, they're always watching for the next dangerous thing. And I used to say that it seemed like my daughter had a river of fear running through her veins. And that fear didn't necessarily look like fear. It looked like aggression. It looked like anger. It looked like competition for every tiny thing with her, her siblings. It looked like control. But really, all of that was rooted in this deep river of fear that she had in her body. And so that chapter is about how to address that fear and how to increase safety for the child so that then they can be calmed enough and feel safe enough that they can actually learn these new things and heal. And, and the, the security of a home is what provides that ability for them to, uh, to, to really process and learn anything. Emily, thoughts on how we can work to first of all, calm our children's fear. And then I want to talk about calming parents' fear because parents also uh, bring fear to this. But uh, Emily, let's talk first about uh, uh, calming our children. Sure. Well, I think that one thing that's important to note is just because the parent knows that the child is safe in their care, that does not mean that the child is experiencing safety and feels safe. So a child who's experienced harm, just depending on their history, is not going to arrive in a safe home and all of that history to be to not be impacting how they're currently experiencing the world. And so even if a parent knows that the child is safe, they should be asking themselves constantly how to make the child feel safe. Um, one example that Dr. Purvis used to give is that um, a child may be afraid at night and you may think to yourself, well, this child is 11 or 12 years old. They're too old to be scared at night to come to my room. But if a child has experienced harm at night or if a child is in a strange house, for the first few weeks or even, goodness, years of being home, it's important to empower that child to feel safe. So maybe that means having a baby monitor in your room and in the child's room where they can talk to you on the monitor to let you know that they're feeling scared. Or maybe it's making a plan during a calm time that they can come and uh, lay out a pallet on the floor by your bed where they can rest when they're feeling scared or um, unsure about something. And just proactively planning for those times and, and recognizing that fear may look different than how the parent may traditionally see fear in a child who has not experienced any kind of trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it often does, as Lisa points out, um, fear brings out an emotion in us that makes us want to, to, uh, to help. But when a child's fear is being expressed as anger or are shutting, shutting down, are rejecting, or anything like that, it's harder for us to feel the, the sense of, okay, look, this child is really needing my help now um, because you're feeling rejected or, or pushed away or, or angry yourself. Certainly. Right, because their yeah. behaviors then can bring up fear in us. And so all of a sudden you have a child who's in this state of dysregulation and all out fear and you, your brain is responding with fear too. And then nobody can think clearly and we have right. to calm down. And I can remember when my daughter, after like raging and being so out of control, when I could finally calm her enough to get her to come sit in my lap. And I can remember just rocking and rocking with her and just saying, you know, we're okay. We're okay. And I wasn't saying it just for her. I was saying yeah. it for me. Like we are okay and we're rocking and we're calming our brains and we're, we're bringing down that high level of anxiety. Well, yeah. And that's the, uh, and that's why I, I want to talk about parental fear because we are human and 
and, and, and oftentimes we are fearful. We are fearful that because we don't understand why our children are behaving the way they are. And we, and it's so easy to do what, what I call spinning, where you're just starting to spin. If they're like this now, what are they going to be like when they're 15? What are they going to be like when they're 20? Uh, oh my gosh, you know, and, and what have I done? Have I ruined my family? Uh, it's, you know, I'll, I will never be able to, to, to help this child. We will never feel like a family. And, uh, and and those fears are, are they're real. We're human. So Emily, how do we address our fears as uh, as we approach our children? Because uh, we are not calming when we're terrified. Sure. Well, I think one thing that is so important is all of these strategies that we talk about in the book, and all of the strategies that TBRI is giving caregivers to use with young children. You also need to use on yourself. You need to give yourself voice. You need to make sure you're taking care of your body and empowering your physical needs and, um, you know, eating healthy, exercising if you can, um, making sure that you have people who can connect to the place where you are in life. If you're really struggling with children in your home, the people that you need to talk to may not be the people who have that seemingly picture perfect family. You need to find people who are experiencing things that are similar to you. And Lisa is so, her work is so powerful in that way, connecting with moms. And so it, I think we talk about this a bit um, in the chapter about taking care of yourself, that it's important to use these strategies for your own heart to help calm your own fears. And so that you can parent out of a place of hope and your own felt safety rather than a place of anxiety spinning and, Mm -hmm. and ultimately fear. That is so true. Yeah, we, um, the same, uh, the techniques work on humans and we parents are humans as well. Absolutely. (laughs) Right. I think parents need nurture. And if you can find a therapist for yourself or a really good trauma-informed therapist who will nurture you as you work together for the sake of your child, that's extremely powerful. Or even a, a mom who's walked through this, who's coming out the other side, who can walk alongside you and, and care for you in the same ways that you're trying to care for your child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that, that I think is a misunderstanding that a lot of people who are not, who are not truly invested in the trust-based relational intervention approach, TBRI, and as, as described in uh, the connected child, as well as the connected parent book, is the assumption that that this type of parenting is uh, permissive parenting, that it's basically letting kids do whatever they want. It is, and and, I, and and not only that, but I have actually seen a number of parents who are believing that they are connected parents, that they're they're using the attachment parenting styles. Who, who are, uh, who, who basically don't have any forms of discipline or, or not much. And, and knowing, having uh, known or having talked with, uh, interviewed uh, Dr. Purvis a number of times, I know for a fact that that's not her approach. So let's talk some about the disciplining and uh, when as a utilizing the TBRI and the connected approach. Is it possible to still have expectations of behavior and, 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 and enforce those expectations? Lisa, is, I'm going to start with you as, as a mom of 12. Well, I think all of us, we parents, we come to this with our own sort of style. And of course, we've talked about attachment we're wired differently. And so I think some parents are naturally more high structure, are better at following through and holding standards and other parents default probably too much toward nurture and don't find that balance. And a lot of couples, one will be one and one will be the other, which is definitely true for my husband and me. And I think this is where we talk about the balance of nurture and structure, because we need both for our children to feel safe. And so it's like a ditch on either side of the road. And if we, if we start to drift too far toward one ditch, we're not helping our children. Either way, we need to be in the middle. And children definitely need boundaries. They need um, 
very clear expectations in order to feel safe. They cannot even come close to meeting our standards if they don't understand what they are. And so I think it's important for us to be consistent for, for their sake. And I know for me, I definitely drifted into that uh, place of being probably too nurturing and, and maybe even a little too permissive. And I had to learn that I could do both, you know, that I could uh, hold my kids to a standard as much as was possible. But we also have to be realistic. We have to set a bar that's low enough for them to get over. You know, if parents have an idea that their children are going to be able to obey the way other children do, and they set a standard for them, the child may not be successful and may, and they, our children need to experience success. So even say with eye contact, um, you know, we might expect a child to be able to connect with our eyes while we speak to them. But for a child who's had a lot of trauma, the very best they might be able to do is just glance up at your eyes and glance away and glance up and glance away. And that's success for that child. So we have to be really realistic and mindful as we, set the standards we expect our kids to be able to, to achieve. Mm -hmm. And that we need to have both. Emily, any thoughts on that before we move on? Well, a quote from Dr. Hervis that I, I love that I'm just going to read so I don't get it wrong is, if a child needs nurture and I give him structure, I harm his ability to trust me. If a child needs structure and I give him nurture, I harm his ability to grow. Both must be used hand in hand. And I think mm -hmm. that just sort of is a microcosm of what Lisa was saying. An analogy that Dr. Purvis used is that parents have a structure foot and a nurture foot, and you need both to walk forward. And if you are upping the structure, you need to up the nurture as well. And if you're mm -hmm. up, upping the nurture, then it's okay to up the structure in a way that's developmentally respectful to your child's not only chronological age, but their developmental age, which may be much younger for a child who has experienced um, trauma. Yeah, that, and that's very true, is that we do have to look at our children's developmental age uh, and how it has been impacted by their early trauma. Uh, because as Lisa was saying, we want our kids to succeed. And if our expectations are unrealistic, then we're setting them up for failure. Yes. Mm -hmm. And shame, they will go to that deep yes. core of shame. I'm, I'm worthless, I'm not good enough, I'm all those things. Um, so yes, their success is really important. Mm -hmm. And how does this tie into as our children age into young adulthood and, um, and into their 20s? How does this, uh, and, and Lisa, I'll direct this because I believe you have children who have, are, are in that uh, age. Uh, how does this approach work uh, with that age, uh, young adult? The approach of connected parenting, is that what you're mm -hmm. referring to? Yes. Mm -hmm. well, and that nurture, that nurture uh, structure balance, but also connected parenting. Well, we could do a whole episode on teens and young adults for certain, because I am so in the thick of that. Uh, <laughs> but, you know. Right there with you. Yes. <laughs> I think um, because my children, even my children who came to my family later, they've all had years of my parenting now, and they know I think even um, if they've struggled with attachment, they do know that that we are a safe place for them and that we're always going to love them. And so with my young adult kids, um, I think I've had to really just open my hands and let them, you know, they're making their own choices. But when things don't go well or they make a decision that turns out to be a poor one, they know that we are still, we have their back, you know, and we can't control their decisions at all. As you know, Don, at this point, we have very little control. That's right. Very little control. So I think it becomes a lot at this point for me about managing my own anxieties and uh, yeah. not letting myself spin, you know, like you were mm -hmm. referring to, but just try to be as calm and patient as I can with my kids. And fortunately, I really love the people my kids are turning out to be, and I love being with them. And that doesn't mean it's all easy. You know, I have one daughter who's still struggling quite a bit, and I have to respect her and just continue to tell her I love her and just let her process too. Yeah. 
Okay. Let me announce one of our partner agencies. These are uh, agencies and organizations who believe in our mission of providing unbiased, accurate, expert-based, trauma-informed education and resources to adoptive, foster, and kinship families and the professionals who support them. And these agencies have backed up that belief by support for this, for this podcast, as well as all of our resources. One such agency is Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a Hague-accredited international adoption agency placing children from Armenia, Bulgaria, Croatia, Georgia, Ghana, Guyana, Morocco, Pakistan, Serbia, Ukraine. And they also specialize in the placement of children with Down syndrome. And they also do a lot of kinship adoptions throughout the world. So we thank them for their support. What the topic of respect is one that comes up a lot, both in, uh, we've already quoted, uh, I can say that again with respect, uh, which if you've uh, talked with Ke- uh, Dr. Purvis, you would know that that's, that's something that she said a lot, but, uh, the, but, but also with parents, we hear a lot from parents, the importance of respect, because in some ways it just undermines your, undermines your confidence as a parent, it undermines, it gets under your skin, uh, it also sets the balance off uh, off kilter in a family. So how, Emily, can we help establish and teach respect for our children who've come from, as Dr. Purvis would say, hard places or from, a tra- from uh, traumatic backgrounds? Sure. So I think that um, something that you'll notice quite a bit in the book is Dr. Purvis and Lisa ask you to go back to the beginning in almost every chapter. And what we mean is, your own history. And so what that means is asking yourself why you're experiencing your child's behavior as disrespectful. It very well could be disrespectful, but it's also important to understand what you might be bringing to the table in that interaction. So aside from that, I think the first step, or maybe the second step in teaching respect to children or teens who come to your home is to first show them respect for their histories. And so thinking to yourself, okay, this is what this child has experienced. So biologically, they may be younger than their chronological age. There's a a very important research study that Dr. Purvis quoted quite a bit, and we mentioned in the book, that talks about children who have experienced trauma are often half or less developmentally than they may be chronologically. So a child who is 13 may be more like a seven-year-old developmentally. So it's important to act with respect towards that developmental age and adjust our expectations appropriately. As far as teaching respect to kids and teens, as I mentioned in the scripts chapter, or as Dr. Purvis mentioned in the scripts chapter, and as I mentioned earlier, we want to teach those skills in calm times where everybody is regulated. So with younger children, that might look like having a family meeting a couple of times a month, every week saying, Hey, you know, this is what, uh, what, the parents in this house are, we want to treat each other with respect. And so you're going to want to model that. Maybe you're doing a little bit of role play. Maybe you're making it fun with puppet play, things of that nature. With teens, maybe you're shooting basketball hoops and saying, hey, it's important in our house that we treat each other with respect. And so what are some ways that I can show respect for you? Okay, well, well, for me, it's important to me that you don't use bad language. It's important to me that you, you try to look at my eyes when you talk. So could we try to do that? And then since you're teaching that in a calm, regulated time, it's going to be much easier to remind the child or the teen of that behavior when the rubber meets the road, when you're in a tough situation. That's a perfect time to teach a script. Um, show respect so you can remind a child, hey, remember to show respect and then hopefully get the train back on track re- rather than making it a huge ordeal, meltdown, what have you. Okay. Lisa, I, I, something that, uh, that Emily said that I'm curious about, because I think that uh, as I'm thinking about myself, it, it, it rings really true. And that is going back to the beginning and thinking about, okay, why, why is this triggering a disrespect? Why do I, how, why is this threatening to me? Why does this feel disrespectful for me? Can you think of an example, either yours or one of the other parents that you've worked with, um, where there was a behavior that could be interpreted either way and that it helped to understand what we were bringing to the table, what what the parent is bringing to the table? Well, first of all, I have very strong memories of my daughter who came home at 10 and a half. 
And we were talking about the importance of respect. And the thing is, she had no idea why that would matter because she had never had parents. And in fact, it felt very invasive to her to have a mother. She felt like I was keeping an eye on her and she was used to being able to do pretty much whatever she wanted in the orphanage, you know, within reason. And so to her, it felt so invasive and she just pushed back against that and did not, um, feel that I really, she couldn't see why she should respect me. I was just another caregiver, right? And um, so it did bother me a lot. And I think partly it bothered me because of my own theology and the way I had traditionally parented my other children before. You know, children should respect their parents. Well, for a child who's never had parents, I just think we have to be very realistic that that is not going to come naturally at all because adults haven't even been trustworthy. Why would you respect them? So it's, I think it's, it's something that's going to take a while, especially for older kids who come to our home. And we do have to just keep open communication about that. You know, that this is something we expect. We want you to keep working on it. We'll, we'll help you remember by saying, try that again with respect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent. Um, I'd also like, I, I think that it is, when we're talking about attachment, it is easy to slip into the, the, the idea that every issue we see with children who have been adopted, particularly adopted at, at past infancy, or every, or, or every foster child, or, or, or in kinship families, you know, their, uh, every grandchild or cousin or niece or nephew, that's come from uh, a having experienced trauma, that we can immediately assume that all issues are related to either the, tra- either the trauma or the lack of attachment. And so I was thankful to see that you had a section in the book on sensory issues. Lisa, how can sensory issues mimic or, or, or confuse us uh, in our assumptions of what is behind our children's actions and behaviors? Well, some kids who have sensory processing challenges will be aversive to eye contact. They'll be aversive to touch. They um, may resist your closeness, all kinds of different things. And for me, I think when I was seeing this in one of my children, I was assuming it was all about attachment. Like the reason I would give a kiss and it would be wiped off was because deep in this child's heart, they didn't want me as a mother, you know, things like that. And it was, it was personal to me. And it also increased my fear because then I thought, oh no, this is this terrible road we're going down. And I remember a day being in a therapist's office and she was a, an incredible adoption trauma-informed therapist. And my child was playing with something and I was talking with her And he came running up to me and his head smacked into my chin and and it really hurt. And she said, does that kind of thing happen often? And I was telling her yes and everything. And she said, you know, I think he needs to be evaluated by an occupational therapist. I think what we're seeing here is sensory processing disorder. And so we did follow through on that. And I just remember it gave me such a shift in the way that I saw my child. It also gave me a ton of hope because sensory was something that I could tackle. You know, there were mm-hmm. so many mm-hmm. practical things I could do to help with sensory challenges. And I think it just, it opened my eyes and it also renewed my hope. And sensory is kind of a fun thing to explore. Once you figure out your child's sensory differences, there are all kinds of things that you can try to help them with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Emily, any thoughts on the impact of sensory issues on our kids who, who are struggling? Sure. Um, I love the example that Lisa shared because sometimes it really is that quote unquote simple. It may not be the, the huge, scary, emotional situation that we're thinking it might be. But I do think that, and Dr. Purvis talked about this all the time, how sensory issues and attachment issues can inform inform each other for better or for worse. And so Mm -hmm. in Lisa's example, by meeting her child's sensory needs and being able to partner with that child and say, okay, what is going to make you feel better in your body or able, able to listen, that is meeting attachment needs as well. Dr. Purvis used to talk about these issues as if um, like in an old encyclopedia, how they were all 
all of these um, body systems and belief systems and behavior systems are layered on top of each other. So you've got attachment and you've got sensory, you've got neurochemistry, and those are all layered on top of each other. They all inform one another, but we can look at them separately as well. And so that's just one really good example of how this is a holistic parenting style that is, is aiming to look at the whole child. And by taking out this one sensory part, it's impacting the relational needs and potentially behavior needs as well as meeting physical needs. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Behavioral. And, and also what's setting our children off and, and trying if we, can, if we can address some of their sensory issues, then we create a safer, calmer space for them in order, and we've talked about it before, and they, need, they need that secure space in order to grow and learn. Absolutely. All right, in, in the remaining time we have, we've already talked some about how we adapt this approach the connected parenting approach to uh, working with, with teens, uh, tweens and teens, but let's just stick with teens. Um, one thing you've mentioned, uh, I think Emily, you are the one who said, adapt your script to fit, fit, to fit the age of the child. Um, what are some other ways, Lisa, that we can adapt this approach when we're working with uh, adolescents? Well, I think what we have to do is we, you know, we've already talked about chronological age versus developmental age. And I think what we have to do is sort of lay that filter over everything as we're parenting that we have to, you know, what is felt safety for a teen? I mean, I remember with my foster daughter giving her, she had a cell phone and I remember giving her a code that she could text me at any time or a keyword that she could call me and say, and that when she did that, I would get in the car and go get her. You know, that's a very different kind of way of increasing a sense of safety and trust than with a three-year-old, you know, and she only had to do it once, but she knew that I would be there. So I think that's uh, maybe a, a stronger example, but food choices, offering choices is so important for building trust and disarming fear. And when you get to be talking about teens, it's even more important. They are at that natural phase of beginning to be more and more independent. So we need to be willing, I think, to offer them more choices in order to give them the power, if we want to use that word, to make uh, decisions that affect them. For me, another way I've had to adapt with my older kids is to realize that what is important to me may not be important to them. So just because a child's capable of taking an honors class in school does not mean that that is going to actually be good for them. And to be able to listen with, with respect, to have respect for that child and understand that that class, and this actually happened to me where I just pushed and prodded a little bit and because I knew what the child's ability was, but what I didn't fully understand was that that class raised a lot of fear, internal fear of failure. And mm -hmm. so I think we just have to put the, wrap our minds around the fact that they are capable of making more decisions and we need to let them do that. Mm -hmm. Emily, last word for you. How can this approach be and should be adapted to work with teens? Certainly. Well, I think that Lisa has given so many great practical strategies from her own um, experience. Uh, just a couple of things that come to mind that, uh, that Dr. Purvis modeled for all of us is that in working with teens, Dr. Purvis was able to model disclosure in a way that may not resonate quite as well with the younger child. So if, if your, your teen is experiencing something difficult, you're able to have a conversation with that teen in a different way than you would a young child. And that's a benefit. Um, as Lisa was saying, you're also able to partner with them in a different way because if, if they're having some food insecurity or something of that nature, they're, they have the, they're in the big physical body, even though they might be a young child inside a big body to help you prepare a meal. That's huge and wonderful at building the relationship, meeting the physical need and also um, addressing the fear behind that. Also, um, 
all the examples that we see with Dr. Purvis and teenagers, she is able to just come alongside and meet them in a place where you can't necessarily with a younger child. And so I think it's just important to remember that behavior is the symptom of an unmet need, even in a teen, like it is with a young child. And like Lisa said, just to remember that and to be looking at the, um, parenting through that lens of mm-hmm. developmental age and biological age. And, and also, I think that parents of younger children often fear the teen years. And I would say I, I, I love the fact that Dr. Purvis enjoyed the teen years. I have loved my kids' teen years. Uh, not every moment of their teen years. <laughs> Not, not every day even, but uh, in general, if we take the, you know, the 30,000 foot approach, I've truly enjoyed uh, the teen years. So to not approach it, to look upon it as a time of, you really get to know the people that they, they, that they will be for the rest of their lives. So that's a, an added advantage. Thank you so much, Lisa Qualls and Emily Pickett, authors of The Connected Parent, for being with us today to talk about the book. Uh, Thank you again. Keep in mind that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners or our underwriters, and the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your adoption or foster care professional. Thank you for joining us today, and I will see you all next week.